So we've been exploring this question, what is this? And each of us in our own way will have grappled with this puzzle. Some of us might have found it rather infuriating. Others perhaps rather illuminating. An image our teacher used to use was that of the the coagulation of milk that as one as one comes to terms with this question as one asks it and probes it and allows it to infuse your awareness your mindfulness your sense of what's going on it begins to somehow achieve a degree of presence, of solidity. Somewhat in the same way that milk becomes curd or yogurt. It's a very odd image, really, I find. But it's one way, at least it was his way, and I think that would probably have gone back to his teacher and the tradition itself, to somehow try to find language for what, in many ways, keeps escaping the clutches of words and images. As we pursue this questioning, in a way it becomes more elusive it might start out as being something of which we, we might find interesting or challenging or it might be something that reminds us or resonates with some other experiences in our lives. But as we get into it, as we go more deeply into its texture it becomes more palpable in a way, but also somehow more puzzling. And I think for many of us who have pursued this question for some time, we might also have reached that point where the answer-giving mind begins to get just a little bit tired and fed up. It no longer seems appropriate. There doesn't appear even to be any interest in coming up with an answer. That the questioning itself seems to open up our experience, our sense of ourselves, our sense of our being in this world, that has its own fascination. Now, one of the um, corollaries of asking this kind of question is that it goes hand in hand with the fact that we don't know what this is. When we ask anything with sincerity, we are implicitly acknowledging that we do not know something. So when, for example, you were to ask, which is the way to Newton Abbott, you're also admitting, in the very posing of that question, that you do not know where Newton Abbott is. You don't know how to get there. And that is the condition on which you ask, where is it? Where's the road? Where's the way? 
So likewise, when we ask ourselves this rather more existential question, what is this? We are at the same time admitting, acknowledging that I don't know what this is. I don't know. I really don't know. It's not a question of being somehow humble, but it is a recognition that um, in, our, in our heart, in our gut, we don't know what this is. There's one Korean teacher, Sung San, who coined this expression, don't know mind. Don't know mind. And the two go hand in hand. What is this? I don't know. Now we can also use that phrase, I don't know, as part of our, of our meditation here too. It might be helpful at some, uh, in some sittings to quietly say, I don't know, to alternate what is this with I don't know. Now, what is perhaps unsettling about this is that much of our sense of, of who we are, much of our sense of our place in the world, is premised on a set of things we know. And often when we are in discussion, we're having a, a debate with someone or an argument or we're simply in conversation. So much of that revolves around the insistence that, yes, I know that. Uh, I didn't know that, but yes, I know this. We find ourselves so often in such conversations waiting for a moment where we can intervene and present what we know, which we might think of as having some special importance or more revealing or more pertinent than what the other person is claiming to know. That our very sense of, of, of being a, an individual person with integrity, with dignity, with a certain standing rests upon what it is that we think we know. Now this goes deeper than simply having information about things. That's a relatively superficial kind of knowing. But there are certain things that we know that come very close to what we think of as me. I know that I was a monk, that I did this, that I did that, that I learned this, that I learned that, that I became someone maybe respected in my field. And I know that. And the knowledge of that acknowledgement often helps give us a sense of worth, a sense of value, a sense of importance. I know who I am on every level. I'm fully conscious of my place in the world. I know that. And so much of what we um, present to others is what we are quite convinced of, quite sure of, quite certain of about ourselves. So when we're asked 
to really pose this question, what is this? We're also being asked to, 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 to challenge or to at least put into question everything that we assume that we know about ourselves. It's not that we're saying that that information, that knowledge may be true or false. But can we open up our minds and our hearts to the underlying mystery of what we are? And there's something in that which is beyond our capacity really to contain it in words. So we go back to the, the dialogue between Huai Neng and Huai Zhang. Where have you come from? Mount Song. That's something that Huai Zhang knows very well. He's just walked several hundred miles, in fact, from this mountain. And then Hui Neng gets to the, the crux of the matter and says, but what is this thing? How did it get here? And at that point, Hui Zhang was speechless. In a moment of, of vulnerability, perhaps, Hui Neng had managed to, to expose in the experience of this young man, everything he didn't know about himself. He was able to acknowledge that here I am, this human being with these arms, with these legs, with this nose, with these eyes, with these ears, with this body, with this name, all these bits of information about myself but when I'm really honest no matter what I've studied no matter what I've learned no matter what experiences I've had ultimately I am a mystery to myself I don't really know and this meditation I feel is very much about getting a grip on that mystery of ourselves, allowing ourselves to let go of these certainties, these convictions, these assumptions, these stories we keep telling ourselves about ourselves. And just being open to the fact that we're here, trying to, as it were, uh, touch, reach uh, that strange texture of just being here, being present. There's an expression that uh, Dogen, who's the founder of the Japanese Soto tradition, had when he returned from China after having spent a couple of years training in a Chan monastery in that country. And he said when he, get, when he came back, he said, the only thing I know is that my eyes go horizontally across my face and my nose goes vertically. I've always liked that. There's something rather alarmingly honest. The eyes go crosswise, the nose goes downwards. Perhaps that's all he could really say. And if we think about it, if we ask ourselves, what do we really know with certainty, we'll probably find there's very little that much of what we, we trade in conversation, what we tell ourselves we know, 
is very often just a, a finely woven tissue of beliefs, of opinions, of second-hand information from people we trust. But what we really know is very little. And again, each of us can perhaps explore that. What do you really know for sure? Knowledge becomes somewhat of a conceit, something we pride ourselves on, But when we look at the foundations of our knowledge, very often they're built on sand. They're built on something quite uncertain. So the practice here is learning to live with uncertainty. Learning to live with doubt. Learning to live with not Knowing. And rather than this being seen as a kind of failure, as a, a kind of a down, downgrading of our own importance, it actually can be very liberating. In that famous book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, by Shunryu Suzuki, The main point of the whole book, I think, is actually all there in the first paragraph, where he says the the mind of the expert is full and it has very few possibilities because the expert knows everything, whereas the beginner has endless possibilities for understanding. In other words, often the more we know, the less we are able to understand. And the less we know, the greater are the possibilities for insight, for comprehension, for beginning to explore, appreciate, see things perhaps anew as if for the first time. I think this same idea, which is quite explicit in the practice of uh, Lin Chi Chan, or Rinzai Zen, is also there in the very description that Siddhartha Gautama gave of his own awakening. We touched on this in the last talk. But just to expand the sentence that I quoted then, the Buddha says that the the reason it's so difficult to see the this-conditioned, or what he calls, in fact, idam tanang, this ground, this groundless ground, of endlessly arising and vanishing conditioned uh, processes. The reason it's so difficult to see that is because people love and revel in and are attached to their place. That if you're attached to your place, you cannot see this ground. Now I think what he means when he says um, that we, are, we delight and we get attached to our place is again very much this idea of thinking that we know who we are. Thinking that we know where we stand. Our position. It's not just our physical place I know that I'm British. That's also something that we know, and that knowing too is actually quite, quite deep in us. Even though we might abhor nationalism, 
when our country's team is playing against another person's country's team, I suspect most of us feel a certain emotional relationship to that. When our team wins, I mean, I'm not remotely interested in soccer or rugby, but when the English win, I feel a certain satisfaction, particularly if they beat the Germans. (laughs) Now, this is not something I'm particularly proud of, but... I have, if I'm honest, that is the conditioning that I grew up with and it's still there to some degree. I'm not the sort of person who will then get in my car and start honking my horn (laughs) and flying a Union Jack, but I've got the beginnings of that in me somewhere. And this again, I think, points to what we mean by this Knowing, this certainty, that's my identity. I think for, for many of us here, it's not our national identity is probably not that important. But all of us, I suspect, have something around which we are quite, as it were, tied. It may be our, our position in our job our role in our family, our status in society, or, in my case, my place in the Buddhist world as an author, as a translator, as a so-called expert. You know, although I, I, I like to think that I'm detached, I know that when someone challenges me, around those things, I tend to get a little defensive. That it feels as though something in me is coming under attack. So despite what I would like to feel like, nonetheless, those old habits or maybe those socio-biological habits are going to stay there. They're going to be around. They're not things one can simply delete. One has to learn how to live with these things rather than pretending to be otherwise or trying to suppress or deny such feelings. They're part of who we are. It's not a problem. It's just a fact. The problems begin when we we tighten our sense of self around those positions, those places. So when the Buddha talks of, of, of seeing this ground, he's also saying that he has somehow let go of his attachment, his identification with place. Another way that this is classically expressed in Buddhism is in the idea of going forth from home to homelessness. And I think the, 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 this metaphor, which I think is a very powerful metaphor, it's usually nowadays um, used as a description of someone who becomes a monk or a nun in which they literally leave the household life and go into a monastery or a center and they take robes and they take vows and then they have gone forth from home to homelessness. But it's also, I think, quite clear, I can certainly see this in my own case, that a monastery can very quickly just become another home. Any uh, position you take, even that of a renunciant, an unsui, as they say in Japanese, a, a wandering monk, which means like clouds and water, 
that too can become something we can clutch onto and build up into another kind of place, another kind of certainty, another kind of base for our own sense of importance. Again, it's, it's knowing, it's knowledge, it's I am this, this is who I am. So there's something about the move from home to homelessness, from place to ground, from knowing to unknowing, from certainty to uncertainty, from facts to questions, that hasn't got to do with any particular thing we do in our life history, but it has to do with what's going on in pretty much every moment of our lives. We have a choice in most circumstances. Do we respond from our place, our convictions, our certainties, our knowledge of who I am, me, or do we respond to the situation out of unknowing, out of a sense of the unprecedented nature of each situation? Are we willing to to risk responding rather than just reacting, rather than just uh, repeating out of habit what we already feel comfortable about? Are we willing to really let go and address the world anew? Again, it sounds like a nice idea, but it's not something we can just willfully impose. So the practice that we're doing, and this is not, I mean, I'm I'm using the specific example of, of Zen meditation, but... I feel that this is a, a, a current, a, a tension that runs through all Buddhist practice. Arguably, it's there in all religious practice. Is that we're being asked in each moment to acknowledge the, uh, the, the, the distinctness, the uh, unprecedented qualities that are coming into being right now. Are we willing to, or are we able, to be with that afresh, without an agenda, without seeking to impose my preconceived notions and knowledge and ideas onto the situation? The... The, the, what makes meditation practice or Dharma practice so difficult uh, is because it's, it's, it's really challenging uh, the whole of us, not just certain ideas we might have. That's relatively easy to overcome. But certain fixed obsessions that are so tied into our sense of who we are It's very difficult to disentangle them, very difficult to step out of them. A week or so ago, I was, well, Martine and I were were having a discussion with a friend of ours who's an actress. And she said something that struck me. She said, the most awful thing, the most terrible thing that can happen when you're on the stage We'd just seen her in a theatre piece. She said, the worst thing is when you find yourself uh, uh, noticing or observing yourself acting. That, that you can't let go into the role. A part of you holds back and, and sees what's going on. And I'm sure... There are examples of that in all walks of life. 
for example, giving a talk. There are times when I find I just speak without much deliberation, without much self-consciousness. And there are other times when I can't do that. That I feel myself somehow sitting to one side and judging and being very conscious of how other people might think of what I'm saying. I can't let go and just speak. I'm, I'm, I'm holding back. There's a very good image that expresses this experience in one of the dialogues of the Chinese Chan master, Lin Chi, known in Japanese as Rinzai. He lived in the 9th century in China. And the text from his record says the following. It says that the master Lin Chi was giving a Dharma talk. And he said, In each and every one of you, passing through the senses of your face, in every moment, there is a true person of no status, no rank, no position. Those of you who have not yet realized this, look, look. And then one of the monks in the audience put up his hand and he said, could you please say something more about the true person of no status? At which Lin Chi got down from his teaching seat, went straight over to the monk, grabbed him by the front of his coat and said, speak, speak. And the monk hesitated. And then Lynchy just pushed him aside and said, what a dried up piece of shit the true person of no status is. <laughs> dried up piece of shit is translated variously. But that's the gist of it. Now, this rather well-known episode in the history of Rinzai Zen I think is very much concerned with the same point. Lin Chi is trying to get across the idea that at every moment, going in and out of our senses, in our face, he says, he uses the word face, going in and out of our face, is a true person who has no status, who has no rank, who has no position, who has no place. And that, in a way, is what he's trying to awaken in his listeners. That spontaneous, uncontrived, immediate, in a sense, a kind of fluid person. And the monk in the audience, of course, like any good student, um, has probably not quite got that point and wants more information. And Lynchy's way of, 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 of responding might be considered rather abrupt. Um, I doubt I could get away with it. <laughs> But I think it makes the point rather well that um, rather than respond from that groundless ground, we want somehow to be sure of what we're doing. We want assurance. We want to know that what we're doing is the right thing. And in that sense, we're kind of blocked 
we're, we're stuck, we're hindered. It's, it's notable, I think, that in, in, in pretty much all the schools of Buddhism, they talk a great deal about the hindrances or about the obstacles. In, in early Buddhism, in Theravada Buddhism, or in the, in the Pali Canon, there are five hindrances. The hindrance of attachment, the hindrance of aversion, the hindrance of, of restlessness, the hindrance of, of lethargy, sluggishness, and the hindrance of doubt, although doubt here means vacillation, being unable to decide one thing or another. Now, if we think of these as hindrances, we obviously need to know, well, what is it that they hinder? What is it that they obstruct? What is it that they block? From the Lin Chi perspective, it would be this spontaneous response of a person without place, without hindrance, if you wish. So it's not a Zen idea that one is seeking, as it were, through such practice, a kind of spontaneity. But it's right there in the early tradition, although they don't use that kind of Zen language. But it's right there. The Buddha is really a metaphor for an unimpeded life, a life which is unobstructed. And his counter-image, his counter-person, is called Mara, the devil, if you wish. And the devil, Mara, is defined as that which uh, grasps, that which blocks, that which limits us. So whether we're practicing being more mindful, whether we're asking this question, whether we are inquiring into the nature of emptiness, in all of these activities we're not seeking information or knowledge but rather we're trying to tap into the sources of our own spontaneity, the sources of our own authenticity. We might use that word now. So the questioning, for example, is also a kind of letting go. When we ask, what is this? And tacitly recognize that we do not know. We are releasing ourselves. We're letting go of certain fixed answers or bits of knowledge or our private set of certainties. We're willing to let that go. And we're doing that not just intellectually, but as this questioning begins to permeate into the very fabric of our sense of who we are, of our consciousness, it becomes felt, it becomes experienced as a kind of release, as a kind of opening up, a kind of relief that we don't have to spend our lives fretting and worrying about what people think about us or whatever it might be. But in questioning, in noticing, in asking, what is this? This is a a practice, it's it's a method to slowly start eroding and wearing down 
fixed assumptions, fixed opinions, fixed beliefs about what's what, who I am, what the world is like, etc. But again, it doesn't, it's not just about things we think or things we know. It's about a whole sense we have of being this rather isolate and rather stuck person who seems to spend so much time really just going round in circles and coming back, no matter how much energy we expend, to the place that we started. So when we ask, what is this? This is another way of opening ourselves to this groundless ground. This ground that really cannot be pinned down or fixed. It's rather more like water. And this is a, an image the Buddha uses in the early tradition. He says the person who's really penetrated into this ground of conditionality, impermanence, contingency, selflessness, that such a person has entered into a stream. And again, the, 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 the metaphor is very telling. A stream. A stream is something that is not fixed. A stream is moving. A stream is vital. A stream, of course, is composed of water, the very thing that gives us life. And remember that Mara, the devil, is sometimes called Namuchi, which means the drought demon in ancient Indian mythology, the one who prevents the monsoon, who, who, who tightens around the, 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 the clouds that give rain. So Mara, or hindrance, or place, or certainty for whatever solace it might sometimes provide, is also that which hinders us from living fully, from flowing, from entering the stream. Now there's another Zen koan that says much the same, albeit in this rather more picturesque language of Chinese Buddhism. A monk and his uh, student, or a teacher and his student, are walking through some woodland. And the student asks the, the te teacher, um, how do I enter the great way? And the teacher says, can you hear that waterfall? And the student says, yes. And the teacher says, right there. Right there. In the sound of that water. So, another, so again, this is another example, like the ones I gave the other night, that shows how we kind of naturally and effortlessly become infatuated with ideas like the great way or enlightenment, entering the way. And yet when we talk about it, it's somehow abstracted from our actual experience. It's, it's, a, it's a belief, it's a theory of some kind. And what the teacher does here is he turns the student's attention to something they can hear right now, the trickle of water, and says, that's where you enter the great way. Right there, here and now, at that point. Now, of course, he's not saying that you can't enter the great way by looking at the leaves of the tree. The point is to Notice that all of our religious and spiritual longing and aspiration 
is all very well. But if it's not actually applied and acted upon in this moment, not next week or when I go on retreat or when I retire and go and live in the Himalayas, but this moment, that that's where the path begins. And there's no, there's no room for hesitation, really. It's about an engagement with what's happening right now. And again, it sounds nice, but as we've probably found, it's possibly the most difficult thing in the world to do. Uh, as, the, as the Buddha said about Mara, he said, there is no power in this world that is greater than the power of Mara. In other words, our, our resistances, our hindrances, our reluctance, our hesitations, our doubts, our attachments, our aversions are the most powerful thing there is. Far more powerful than governments and external forces of any kind. And we don't notice that. We don't see the extent to which we are in some ways trapped and stuck. Right, I will stop here. Um, we still have a little time. If anyone would like to comment or question, yes? Um, I, I use the word authenticity with a certain hesitation. Um, I'm just, I, I can't find the right word. Um, it could be that the most authentic response may not be to be a loving, wise, kind Buddhist person. Again, that would be perhaps just playing a role. And what is... I think striking, let's say, about Linchi is that he doesn't behave like the good, nice Buddhist. <laughs> he jumps down into the audience and he grabs the guy. Or he, A lot of these Zen stories, you, the master's hitting them. Oh, yeah, there's, a, there's some pretty horrible things that go on, actually. Um, and I think what that's trying to show us is that we must be wary of all stereotypes, including the Buddhist stereotype. And it also shows, I think, that we might talk of wisdom and compassion, and I would argue that Lin Chi is acting out of wisdom and compassion. I hope so. But it may not conform to what we would normally expect. Um, And also I'm reluctant to use words like true nature. That there's something moving towards a certain fixity in the idea of a true nature. I think of it more in terms of, of potential and possibility. That um, as human beings we, we have the capacity, the potential to be wise, to be kind, to be compassionate and and that may be what we seek to call forth in our actions and in our words. But whether that's our true nature, I'm not so sure. I don't know. Um, the, 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 at least in, in the Madhyamika school of Buddhist philosophy, the whole notion of our having a nature of any kind is suspect. Uh, that we are possibilities um, for action that can accord or not accord with what we value. But whether there is a sort of an intrinsic wisdom or an intrinsic compassion, I'm not so sure about that.
I think compassion and wisdom are actions that situations can call for, but whether they are therefore somehow intrinsically what is most true about us, I don't know. Yes. Uh-huh. People actually left and lived a different life. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering what at that time it was the wandering. The wandering ascetic, yeah. Mm. I, I'm wondering what the contemporary state of the pranayama is, and I because we're talking about homelessness. Uh-huh. Perhaps the illegal immigrants. Uh-huh. Yeah. could be one that offers a different uh, image. And I'm struggling with this. I don't know whether it would be too literal to embrace that. Uh-huh. But I'm very aware that uh, embracing a flexible a fluidity it might make me a nice middle class Buddhist as it were uh-huh. and, uh, and and the, the danger is Buddhism become a closed into the history of supermarket yes mm. and I'm aware of this need to do the radical make the radical step mm-hmm. the radical step would be um, so it's something I'm struggling with mm-hmm. and the other thing I was thinking Mara is very powerful Resistance is very strong. I wonder whether there is wisdom in resistance. Mm-hmm. I mean, Beck as a joke, but he said that how do we know that the ostrich is not looking at something very interesting in the sand? <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's two different things, but I just um, well, in response to the first part of your question, to me, the, 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 the contemporary equivalent of the, the parabajika, which means the one who's gone forth, the homeless one, is the artist, I feel. I think in modern secular society, uh, it's very often the artist, the writer, the poet, um, the filmmaker, uh, who very often at least at the beginning of their career, has to, in a sense, step outside of the bounds of conventional society. And I think we have this tradition really now, in a way, going back to the Romantic period. Now, of course, it can become romanticized, and I'm sure that probably happened with the renunciants at the Buddha's time too. But I feel that, in a, in a, in, I think in, in, in a quite serious way, I think it's the often it's the it's it's the writer, and I mentioned this last time too, the the novelist, the writer, the person who's not writing, you know, just conventional Jeffrey Archer type fiction. I don't mean that, but a person who's willing to try to look at our world in a radically different way and return that vision to the society. I feel it's it's more the artist. Um, you see, I think at the Buddha's time, the uh, to be, to become a homeless mendicant um, was to some extent driven by uh, by social and economic necessity. In other words, it was about um, disentangling oneself from the expectations of the uh, workaday life, and it, it was equivalent essentially to pursuing what we would call the life of the mind. And so those who dropped out, which is what these people were really, they were dropouts, were actually people embarking on a quest for knowledge, for learning, for understanding. They were dissatisfied with the conventions of their society, their families, their communities, and they were seeking something else. Now I think in many respects that's not the case with many people who are homeless or 
exile today. They're actually seeking home. They're seeking acceptance. They're seeking uh, integration into society. And yet for one reason or another, they're denied that. They're rejected. But if we think of, of the artist, then there's of course a long tradition of such a person being an exile. I mean, you think of someone like James Joyce, is to me a very good example, who basically spent his, in his major book is about Dublin, a, a place he hadn't lived for years and to which he never went back. There's something about the, um, the lives of some of these people, I think, that has something very much of the homeless about them. And Beckett is another example, an Irishman who left literally left Ireland and went and lived in France again. So um, that would be one example. Um, I forget the last thing you mentioned. What was it? It doesn't matter now. Any other questions? Yes? Well, I, I'm not quite sure what, what you mean by inquiry practice, but the, what, going back to the first thing you said, there is a point in which this question begins to turn back onto itself. And you might find, in fact many people find, that they start asking, what is it or what is this that asks what is this? That's very interesting. And as you, you do this uh, practice of what is this, um, you may get to the point where it becomes quite puzzling as to where the question itself comes from. Or what is it that prompts you to pose that question? And so the question is, it's, it's what in, in the Chinese text they talk, they use this expression, turning the light back on itself. So there is a kind of almost perhaps an infinite regress. And so if you come up with some statement like, it is this, and this is a sort of you know, a typical zen kind of answer, or you want to say, you know, hack, <laughs> something like this. Uh, when, when people did this to our teacher, he would say, but what is it that says hack? In other words, turn whatever so-called answer or response you have back into another question. Where's that coming from? Yeah, it's to, to, to recognize that there's no human uh, situation, I feel, that cannot be questioned, that cannot be questionable, fragwürdig in German worthy of being questioned. And so to open up through this practice a kind of 
um, a kind of passion for curiosity and to be, be suspicious of any kind of, of finality, any kind of sort of end point. But to recognize that this is a kind of flow. It's like a stream, if you wish. It, it keeps going and it keeps taking you down to different vistas, different perspectives. There's no end to the questioning. There is, is an end to this session, though, and it's just happened. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.